this passage, this chapter is uh, uh, difficult, and one of the reasons why it's difficult is because it's most often taken to be a counterbalance to the message of God's grace, um, that we are saved through forgiveness of our sins, and everyone agrees on that, but then it's important for John and us to realize the importance of that we need to now do good things now that we're saved. And sometimes if you talk about this passage with reference to this message of grace and don't make that transition, people will often say, well, you're just not taking the Bible seriously when you do that. And I think that if you look at the context of the situation, in one sense, there's, there's two problems that John has been addressing throughout this book. One is we talked about the problem of the Nicolaitans, which is just basically uh, a group of people saying, you know, it's an odd thing. I mean, just saying that the example is that Jesus said, unless you have sex, you cannot enter the kingdom. I mean, it's an odd thing. And so it was justifying having sex with other people's spouses and stuff. So in one sense... Yes, there is a problem with just saying there is nothing wrong with anything, and John is clearly addressing that. But, but the other part of the problem in the church was, and, and so oftentimes that's all people will talk about in terms of this, but, but the, the other main thing that you see throughout with Jesus, throughout the New Testament, and really throughout the whole Bible, is a, another problem that was happening, whereas everybody had to, the church was moved out of Jerusalem because the Romans uh, kicked everyone out of Jerusalem. And people were saying that, look, you come to salvation through Jesus and through forgiveness, but now it's important for us to follow the law, and we need to take what the law says seriously. And, and I think that that is more what is being talked about here with John, because he brings up at the very beginning of this chapter uh, about us being children of God. Because what was being said is, look, you sort of become a children of God, you know, when you first come to Jesus, but what really is a child of God is someone who is defined by who the law was given to, the children of God, and that you really become the children of God through following the law and by not falling into lawlessness, by starting to change your life, to truly repent and to turn from doing bad and now doing good. And the problem with looking at the passage in terms of that as the message and saying that, well, you're not taking it seriously unless you look at it in that way, is that it immediately creates some problems because Paul has started the whole book off by saying to believers included that anyone who says they are without sin is a liar. And he's just pointing out empirically that, like, look, if someone says they're not sinning, empirically, you're going to be able to look at their life and tell, like, well, what about this? <laughs> and that is just a constant thing. Uh, oftentimes, even big people who are the focal point of this message, you need to be holy. Eventually, it always comes out that, like, there's some obvious thing going on in their life, and it's a huge news story. 
But, but it's just, it doesn't take that to see that. We can see that we mess up. And in here, if you take what's being said, he says, you should not, the person should not sin anymore. In fact, he even goes to the saint of saying, you cannot sin anymore if you're a child of God. And so people see that there's a problem with obviously we do sin, but here he's saying we don't. And so what's done to sort of bridge that gap is people will sort of change the wording a little bit and sort of water it down and say, well, to begin with, he was just saying everyone occasionally sins. And there's, you know, obviously we're going to like accidentally do some stuff wrong. But in here he's talking about, you know, you know, moral sins or sins that are just like really, in other words, there's these degrees of sins. And here we're talking about one, yes, in some degree we're a sinner. But he's saying, don't let it get to this big degree well, well, that's actually completely read into the passage. <laughs> that's an inference that we're making based on an idea of thought that we already have that we want this passage to see. So to say that to bring up God's grace and to look at it in terms of Jesus isn't being true to the text, that's really not a fair argument because the only way you're dealing with the fact that we, John brings it out and that we know from human experience that we all continue to mess up to bring up the degrees of sin, it doesn't really, it's not taking it more seriously. And what's happening here in the passage is, I don't know how to describe it, but oftentimes in the church, it would be like, uh, like, like most of the time when someone brings up something like, actually no one does this anymore, because no one, but in the past, I guess, since I'm old and whatever, anyways, deal with the example. People would bring up like something like sanctification. And they would always start off with sanctification is a work of God. And that's how the conversation starts. And they would always bring it up because at the end of the conversation, it would transition from a work of the Holy Spirit to a work that we're doing ourselves. (laughs) And so it would start with you know, the entry point would be God's grace and a work. Of the, but because of that word work, in order to take the word work seriously, we can only see it in the context of the work that we are doing to earn something. And unless we're willing to make that transition to that, it's sort of said, well, you're just not taking the Bible seriously. Uh, very similar to the word righteousness. Unless you're talking about the, whenever the Bible brings up the word righteousness, unless you're willing to take it as a righteousness of works, you're not taking the Bible seriously. But if you take it in terms of righteousness of faith, then, so you get the point. I, I think that what John is actually doing here is trying to explain how that comes up for us and why it is we should just stick to something like sanctification, is a work of the Holy Spirit. And where all of this can be seen in terms of something that Jesus is doing by grace. And so let me... But, but you can decide how you want to look at it. But, but for me, I'm going to take a look at it here in terms of how can you see this passage by standing only on the grace of God and not... Uh, pulling away from that. And, and here's how I think it starts and why I think he's talking about this issue. He says, See what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And then he says, 
And that is what we are. <laughs> Exclamation point. In other words, it's not something that you come to Jesus and then you work hard to become the child of God. <laughs> He's saying, you are. This other group that's saying, no, you become the child of God by adhering to the law. No, you already are. What it, what it is, what they are trying to hold out there for you to become, he's saying, you already are that. You don't need the path that they're taking because that's who you already are. And he says something interesting here to highlight what the problem is because people that are pushing us to become something that has already been given to us, uh, they often talk about it as a tension between works and, and grace. But it's interesting what he says the tension is because he says, it's translated, see how great, um, it's in the most generic terms, it's see what type of love. And, and really what it's, if you take it in sort of the literal sense, it's saying, people will often point this out, and that he's saying, see what otherworldly type of love we have that then he says uh, the world does not know in the next verse. He's saying this love is an otherworldly type of love that, that the world doesn't know. What he's saying is no, the tension isn't, you can say it's between grace and works, but what it really is at its root is this tension that we have that we just can't comprehend the kind of love that God is giving because it is so foreign to us. In other words, look, whenever some sort of problem erupts, and whether it's a personal problem or whatever, and you talk to someone, it is virtually, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's almost impossible for us to talk about that problem without talking about, well, we should do this, or we should do that, or we should... Just our language in and of itself, it makes it almost impossible to talk about or just communicate a problem without communicating it in the sense of, we need to do this, or we need to do that to get this solved. It's impossible, really. And when you do try and bring up the grace of Jesus or this other kind of love that isn't deserved, where God's... People just sort of... They, it's, it's hard to like comprehend it because they don't really understand... We just don't understand it. And he's saying this is the kind of love that he's just given us as a gift based on forgiveness. He's about to say when we have this hope fixed on him, this purifies us. He's defining what kind of love it is. It's that we're just granted right up front based on forgiveness at the very beginning to be called children of God apart from anything that we've done to deserve it. And that's hard for us to see. And we can, even when we say, oh, yes, that's true, it's hard for us to not think, well, some amount of his love has to be based on us doing something right. Some amount of God's favor has to be based on us adhering to some sort of sense of rule. And why do we think that way? Because that's the way the love that we're most used to in the world around us is that it's always a love based on some sort of condition. And so it's really hard for us to pull away from that and just say, oh, wait a minute, are you saying that God is loving us to our fullest? 
to be actually called the children of God apart from anything that we've done to earn it. That's a hard thing for us to grab a hold of. What we think is what we've kind of come to hear, but then we do some other stuff that gains God, you know, his favor grows with it, that we can actually increase God's favor. And he's saying, no, no, the kind of love that we get the second we turn to Jesus, the second we have some ounce of forgiveness, that that immediately makes us as much love as he has for Jesus, he has for us. That's a hard thing to accept. And then what's really interesting here, and at least I find it interesting, is the way that he describes when he says, all who have this hope, um, I don't know why this one says in them. Uh, does most of your Bible say like in him, right? Or not? I don't know. No one's looking at that. I think I know why they said that, but I actually didn't know anyone said that. But it's referring to Jesus, basically. So it's what purifies us is having this hope in Jesus, just as Jesus is pure. And how he describes that is that he says, Dear friends, we are now children of God. We are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made manifest or known. But what we do know or what we know is that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see as he is. On the one side of things... There's this push forward that is saying, look, we need to have some sort of change in this life. But what John is pointing to is, no, that the the hope that we're buying into, having a hope in Jesus, means not a hope that who we want to be, we will be right now, but who we want to be, will be when Jesus returns. What what does he mean by that? That there's a lot of pressure on this other side to become something that has actually already been given. But there's this idea that I'm going to make some sort of progress in, in not sinning, some sort of progress in becoming a holier or a more righteous person. But who it is that they're targeting that we should become in this life, that's never going to happen in this life. It's only going to happen when Jesus returns. And we're not really quite sure what that body will look like or what that change or whatever. It'll be like Nietzsche says it'll become like the superhuman, which he says there is no hope, but it's this transition to a different person will happen at that point. And it's not clear, but what is clear is that we'll become like Jesus at that point. And what does become like Jesus means someone who is no longer sinning. He says Jesus is righteous. The righteousness that we're looking for in this life, he says, is only going to come when Jesus returns. And that starts an interesting discussion that he now reiterates twice when he says, abide in me, which is basically wait. 
in Jesus. And what he's saying is, the tension is between the love that we think needs to be earned and that we see in the world and the love that God is giving us. And he says, that is seen not in us trying to adhere to loss. What it's actually seen in is in the way that we spend this life waiting. And that's a interesting thing to think of that what purifies us isn't the way we push forward on things. What purifies us is the way in which we wait. And that's something that doesn't really sit well with us. And he's saying why that doesn't sit well with us is because we're so focused on this love that's earned and that pushes us into this thing of thinking that we're obtaining something that is actually given to us. And instead of just waiting, we feel like we just have to do action, 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 action. He says... Here's the problem with that. Everyone who makes sin or sins uh, breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Oh. This is a, was an argument that was used back then and is still used today. I hear it all the time that, yes, we are saved by grace, but it is very important for us to adhere to laws, and we don't want to fall into lawlessness. And the Bible is about giving us the wisdom of God so that we can have a good life by following God's wisdom. And so we really need to embrace being lawful. And these other things that are going on, it's really about lawlessness. And that was the argument that they were making to them back then. See all this craziness that's going on with this other group? There's just crazy. That's about lawlessness. But what we need to do is to pursue a life that's law-abiding, and here's the things that we're doing that's right. What John says is something that Jesus brought up, saying, look, anytime you mess up, you're breaking the law, so you're lawless. (laughs) You can't say, oh, well, I'm keeping the law in all these other aspects, and so I am a law-abider, and I just occasionally break the law over here, you know, accidentally, you know, occasionally, or whatever. And, and, but what defines me is I'm... He's saying, no, if you break any kind of part of the law, it makes you lawless. In other words, he's saying you can't claim to have some sort of benefit or blessing that's coming to you because you think that you've you know, accomplish something according to the law. Like, I did this right, so I followed God's wisdom here, and so therefore I deserve God's blessing because I followed this. You can't do that and at the same time acknowledge, well, occasionally I break the law over here. Because he says, if you break any part of the law, then you invalidate the whole thing. So he says, you can't possibly say that there's some value or some way that I am growing or some way that that God's favor is falling upon me. That's given to us at the full, at the very beginning. He says, first off, but also just the very idea that I'm achieving something, you can't do that unless you were to actually say, I've never sinned. 
you know, I maybe did it at one point, but now for the rest of my life, I'm never messing up in any kind of way. And that's just an absurd thing to say. So he said, by the very nature of the law, the fact that anyone who says they're without sin is a liar, you cannot say, I am a law-abiding person, and this is a lawless person. That makes no sense. You can't say this person is illegal, but I am legal. You know, it'd be like saying I, my right taillight is working, but my left taillight is broken, but I'm a law abider. You know, it's just the CHP doesn't really care which taillight it is that's broken. And for the most part, the CHP will care. Everyone else may not. So that's a stupid example. The sheriff will also care if you're around a hospital or something like that. But no, but you get what I'm saying. He says, one thing, what it is that people are pressing on you by saying, no, you need to adhere to our law, our culture in the church, what we deem as important, that we are the lawful people, and these other things are about lawlessness. What they're missing is, is that whatever it is that they're thinking that's being gained, you've already been given the day that you stepped towards Jesus. And second, whatever it is that they think they're obtaining, it's completely invalidated by just an honest look at their life to be able to say, well, I don't know if you're doing this right, but I know this is messed up. And as soon as that is the case, as soon as any amount of sin or messing up is realized or admitted, it completely invalidates us and replaces us under the curse of the law. And the only way to get under the curse is to have something that he's going to talk about in a second, be ransomed from that through Jesus. He says, but you know that he appeared that he might take away our sins. This is the only way that we are called children of God. This is the only way that we have favor of God. This is the only progress that is being made. It's not wrapped up in our works. It's in the works of Jesus, insofar as Jesus is taking away our sins. He says, no one who lives in him, or this is where it brings out a lot of your translations probably say abides in him, but he, uh, that, that literal is no one who waits on him is making sin. And, and this is an important thing because this is, you know, I don't know how many times in church you hear these, you know, without connecting it to anything that the Bible has to say, you'll hear these analogies like, you know, sorry I'm dating myself too. You may not hear this anymore. But there was a day and an age where 50% chance any sermon is going to give this analogy. You know, someone is like, the rains are falling, it's a flood, and I can't remember what happens to start with. But anyways, the person finds himself on the roof and the water is rising and someone comes by in a boat and says, jump in, you know, the, you, the flood is here, you know, you need to get rescued. And they, no, no, Jesus is going to rescue me. And so they just stay there. And then a helicopter comes by and says, jump on this helicopter. The waters are rising. And then the person says, no, no, Jesus will rescue me. And then the waters cover them up and they drown and they go to heaven. I mean, these are, examples used to be really morbid. They were like, 
German fairy tales or something like that. <laughs> now we have the Disney versions. But, uh, and, and then, so the guy goes to heaven and says, why didn't you save me? And he's like, well, I sent the boat and the helicopter. And anyways, first off, whenever I heard that, I think, I, I don't really know of anybody that would do that. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure everyone would get on the boat unless they were, like, super afraid for some reason. But then the other thing is, is, like, the helicopter isn't going to just go away. They're just going to latch you on and take you. I mean, they're used to people panicking in that type of situation. I just think, and that's probably more the case of what would happen with God is it really doesn't matter what you say. Well, I'm just going to sit here. They would just take you away. <laughs> or God would just take you away. But, but you can see the, the, the backing of that example is, is that there's something bad about waiting. <laughs> And you can see what the transition to that is. There's something negative. It's making of sin to wait. And so therefore, you need to jump in the water and start swimming because God's given you the ability to swim and he's already given you the things you need to. And so you just need to go do it. You hear sayings like, God helps those who help themselves. Our emphasis is always pushed towards, it always starts with this idea. But the idea of waiting on God is ridiculed. And it's always been that. It's not just uh, Pelagius started his ridicule of Augustine's prayer about waiting on the Lord and the gift that God gives by saying, in the slothfulness of our hearts. We <laughs> He's just saying, look, people are going to tell you that put this pressure on you that, that you're not really going to be a Christian unless you start adhering to this idea of works that I have. He says, that's not true. You're not really going to be accomplishing something or you're not really moving forward uh, unless you adhere to this idea of earning something. That's, nothing's being accomplished on their end. And you're going to be sort of ridiculed the whole idea of waiting. But what he's saying is, is what else are we doing but Waiting. <laughs> He says, nothing is changing here in this. We're waiting for Jesus to return and fix everything. That's what colors everything. The ultimate solution to everything in this world isn't that it's going to happen right now. That's why it says, you know, the poor you'll always have with you. It's not Jesus saying, people say, oh, well, if you talk about that, it seems like, oh, don't do anything for anyone. He's just saying, that problem is going to get solved. But right now we're going to be waiting. And, and that's an important thing to think through. Because oftentimes our help and our love for people and the things that we're doing are so wrapped up in a false idea of who we are that we've accomplished something by our works. A false idea of the progress that's being made. And when people don't follow along, we have a hard time waiting, and we just sort of cut them off and just say, well, I've done everything I could do for that person, and they're just not listening. If they were to listen to what I have to say to them, then they would have had help already. But as it is, you know, their problems are their own problems. And that's why he's talking about it being the love of the Father. Not the 
the love of a bad father who cuts their child off, but the love of a good father, a, a good mother, who, who just says, you know, waits. He says, Dear children, reemphasizing the love that the Father has, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who makes righteous is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. He's bringing in that there's more going on here than just us to begin with. He says, those who are born of God will not continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. And the seed, that's a, something that you would have only have understood or would only be understandable to them in a Jewish context because it's a reference to the promise of a Savior that was given to Abraham and its seed singular, which is a, a understanding of what that promise is, that, that in your seed all the nations of the world will be blessed, seed singular, that there will come a person from your seed that will save the world. And that, you know, Christians believe that's a reference to Jesus. Well, what, what's he saying here? He says, by this, you know, people know who the children of God are. If you go back to that promise of Abraham, and if you early on see how that idea of the promise of this Savior in the seed is applied, uh, you can see very early on that they understood something different about that. Uh, Joseph acted on that promise by when... So the story of Joseph, if you don't know it, is that his brothers betrayed him uh, because he was having these visions of where God was going to take him, that they and their whole family would bow down before him. And also the favor that the father had on him, they were jealous of. And what they were going to do was kill him. But what they did instead was they sold him into slavery to Egypt. And he was a slave in Egypt. And and a lot of horrible things happened to him. And he was in prison and, and... what ended up happening is Pharaoh had this dream, and I'm just short-tailing the story. We should take a look at Genesis again here soon. Uh, and God gives him an interpretation of the dream. It's that there was going to be seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. And his recommendation is as God was telling him this so that they would store up those seven and use the other seven when they're... And the king believes him and puts him in charge. He's has the power of Pharaoh now behind him. And when his brothers come and he reveals themselves to them and they're trembling with fear because they know what they've done and they know what God has done and they take a look at what they have done and what God has done and the immediate thing that crosses their mind is we're going to (laughs) die. You know, this is just like what we deserve, that realization. But Appealing to that promise of the seed, Joseph says to them, no, no, 
And Joseph is in the process of saving the entire world from hunger. The entire world, or at least that side of the world uh, that they're speaking of, came to Egypt and was saved by the food that Joseph had saved up and doing that. So he was literally saving the world by feeding them, and that's a good thing. But he says to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. What was he saying to them? It's like, well, God made it righteous. God made it good. Even though you messed up, and it's the same thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 when he addresses the same exact thing that John is addressing here in this chapter. He says, God works all things together for good. What he's saying is, look, what it is that we're looking at in the biggest sense is Jesus is going to ransom us, that there isn't going to be this utopia created here on earth. It's just not happening. (laughs) That in order to have that here, given who we are, God would have to remove everybody from the planet, and then there would be no people to have a utopia for. But what our hope is, is that some sort of fundamental transition will happen, that we will become like Jesus and not sinning when he returns. And that's him ransoming us from this body of sin that we have. And we can see changes here, but the changes are not of the sort where we can say, I've earned some favor with God, or I've gained a higher standing than you, or I am more reputable than you, or I have accomplished something in terms of, you know, now earning something. Because it's not along those lines, but what we should be able to see and what a true child of God is, is brings out what Joseph brought out is that even in the places where we do mess up and make sin, Jesus can even ransom us from that right now and change it and work it out so that it's good. And it's the scene of that that gives us a faith. As we see that happen in this life, that's what grows our faith that in the end, God will do that in a greater, more perfect way. And and so the focus that he's saying is is we should be able to, instead of seeing the things that happen in our life as a result of us having figured out, you know, the wisdom of God and having adhered to it, and everyone else needs to be educated about what the the wisdom of God is, and, and that they need to be disciplined and forced and pressured into doing what we know is right. Instead of seeing things that way, it's perfectly acceptable to see it the way that John is saying the Bible is really talking about, which is from beginning to end, it's all about the works of Jesus and what he is doing in our life. It's all about us waiting for him. Waiting for him to take care of us. And whatever it is that we're doing, you know, in terms of running around and doing this or doing that, that, he's not even saying that's, you can't do that. (laughs) He's just saying, look, many, many, this is a stupid example. This happened numerous times to me, and this is like prior to becoming a pastor, but even kind of continued in, is, 
you know, you, you need a job. And, and I don't know if this happened to you, but a lot of times I kind of knew, like, this is, I think this is the job that Jesus is going to give me. But I had to kind of wait for that to happen. <laughs> and so while I would wait, I'd apply to like 100, 150 jobs, just like, you know, I don't know. I just needed to stay busy. <laughs> but in the back of my mind, I kind of knew that, well, whatever it is, Jesus, whatever you want to do when you're waiting, do. <laughs> Ride your bike around the block or something. I don't know. You know? But don't change your hope. <laughs> is what he's saying. Don't let that shift happen. We're waiting. Whatever it is that we feel like needs to change or, or needs to be addressed, it, it doesn't, he, the change doesn't need to be that Joseph's brothers don't do anything wrong. They can, you know, they meant to free, he says, that doesn't affect God's plans. He was waiting for God. And, and there are a lot of things in, in our life that I know you're waiting for, <laughs> you know, that I'm waiting for. And, and as he says, it's not even that clear as to what exactly that's going to be, <laughs> but you know you're waiting. And, and there's also a fear, and people play off that fear that, like, I'm waiting, and part of the reason why I'm waiting is because I just keep messing things up, or I'm just not trying hard enough, or I'm just making these mistakes, I'm setting things back. That, or, or sometimes we think other people are standing in the way, and, and I'm waiting, but if they're doing this, like his brothers are just doing these evil things to him. And what he's saying is none of that matters. Because G, if Jesus is the one doing it, if that's who we're waiting for, that's the promise, the hope that we have. And, and it's okay to wait. And of course, that waiting is going to... You know, if you look at the Bible, the entire Bible is basically story after story after story of people waiting for long periods of time. 80 years. Sometimes 40 years. Waiting a week is difficult. <laughs> You know, we'll wait two, three months. We'll wait a year. It's difficult. People, the, the span of time will adjust to whatever it is our, you know, it's just difficult to wait. But what waiting entails, it entails a, an acknowledgement that if I could do it on my own, I would do it, and I wouldn't wait. And if you feel like you can, then do it and see what happens. And if you feel like you're accomplishing everything great on your own, then you don't need Jesus. <laughs> but if you do need Jesus, then that by necessity, by sort of, um, um, I don't know what you'd say, uh, uh, in and of itself, entails that you're waiting for Jesus to bring us to a place, and, and that ultimate place will be when he returns. But we can also see, as Joseph saw, him doing things, a calling that he has for our life that, that, you're, that we're fishing around to try and understand what that is. And we keep waiting for it to come and there's this frustration that, that's building and things that people say to us about it make that frustration more. And he says, the answer to that isn't just squirming around and going around crazy. The answer to that is to understand this otherworldly love 
that we've said we understand when we first come to Jesus, that apart from our works, apart from anything that we've done, that God loves us so much that he sent his only son to come down here on earth to become one of us and to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that our love would never be based on anything that we've done. And when he says to destroy the works of the devil, what the word is, ransom us from the works of the devil. To ransom us from bigger things than just us messing up. Let's pray. Lord, I I just pray that you would open our hearts up to understand how great your love is and help us to understand that the type of love that you have for us and, and help us to just accept it and to find rest in it. And Lord, all of us that are waiting on you, I just pray that you would give us encouragement and give us hope uh, this week that something, Lord, that will happen that will enable us to just lean and, and rest and wait on you. And we thank you for the way that you save us. We lift all of our prayers up to you in your name, Jesus. Amen.